0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast on the Books and Arts (coughs) section of the Weekly Standard. And this week, we're looking at the September 28th issue, and uh, the lead piece is a review of a book entitled The Fortunes of Francis Barber, The True Story of of the Jamaican Slave Who Became Samuel Johnson's Heir by Michael Bundock. This is from Yale University Press. The review is uh, uh, by Edward Short, who's a frequent contributor to our pages. And um, Samuel Barber is a, is a uh, one of those figures in literary history who's in and of himself not especially important, but he's, he's such a unique figure and so obviously important to someone who does uh, loom large in history that he fascinates me, and especially so because Francis Barber was a um, uh, freed Jamaican slave who uh, ended up in England and ended up as a, um, a member of Samuel Johnson's uh, extended household. Dr. Johnson, who was widowed at a relatively early age, had a house in Gough Square in London where he was working on his famous dictionary. And he had a habit of kind of picking up stray people who took his fancy over time, who who came to stay and, and never left. Francis Barber was one of them. And um, obviously he's of some interest both to Johnson biographers and to uh, to posterity because he was a, a obviously a black man in 18th century London. Um, Johnson was very fond of him and sort of served as his mentor, and, and Barber himself was a man of um, considerable intelligence and ingenuity. They seemed to have had a slightly volatile relationship. There were periods where clearly they were annoyed with one another and Barber would go away for a bit, but uh, in the long run, he was one of the people closest to Dr. Johnson and uh, in some ways is symbolic of Johnson's attitude about many things. Johnson, of course, was famously skeptical of the American Revolution because the colonists uh, talk so much about uh, liberty, and, of course, they live in a slave society. And Francis Barber um, not only stayed with Dr. Johnson, but stayed with him to the very end, and he was the uh, heir to Johnson's estate, which was not huge. But nevertheless, it's a, an interesting symbolic... Um, a gesture on johnson's part and causes us to wonder a little bit more about francis barber and the and the uh, the nature of his relationship to his to his uh, very distinguished mentor the, the the sort of grandfather of english literature and certainly of literary london in the 18th century a fine piece by edward short that is followed by a, a, a review by robert wargus of a book entitled The Libertarian Mind, A Manifesto for Freedom by David Boaz. David Boaz is a uh, well-known uh, libertarian um, scholar and polemicist in Washington associated with the Cato Institute. This is actually a book that he wrote um, uh, some years ago, uh, almost 20 years ago. In fact, this is an updated version. But it's interesting uh, because Robert Vargas, who is not unsympathetic to many of Boas' um, uh, views and insights nevertheless um, take some trouble to point out to some degree some differences and uh, uh, shortfalls between what libertarians believe and what they practice and some things are emphasized in the libertarian mind here and some things are de-emphasized and, and it's, a, it's a kind of interesting not, but not unsympathetic exploration of the whole issue by Robert Wargus. If you've ever wondered what what libertarianism means, especially in this uh, season of the oncoming presidential campaign, this is as good a as good a thumbnail description of it as you'll find, I think. That is followed by a review by Amy Henderson of a book entitled *Irrepressible: The Jazz Age Life of Henrietta Bingham* by Emily Bingham. Uh, this is a book that um, if the Bingham family weren't who they were it probably never would have been published the Binghams are a wealthy family of Louisville who for a long time owned the Louisville Courier Journal and um, probably the most prominent Bingham of the 20th century was Robert Worth Bingham the mother of the um, figure described here excuse me, the father of of the subject of this biography who was the publisher of the Courier-Journal and then um, Franklin Roosevelt's ambassador to England in the 1930s. But his daughter Henrietta was one of those uh, new women of the 20th century, uh, um, although a little later than the turn of the century. She was a kind of 20s flapper. She was born in 1901, actually, a child of the century, I suppose. But um, scooted off to um, London and Europe in the 1920s and got herself mixed up with the Bloomsbury Group and, and um, assorted... Um, uh, well-known names in literary, artistic uh, um, uh, show business world. Uh, returned to New York at some point, was a friend and patron to people of the Harlem Renaissance. She herself was not a uh, an artist or writer of any particular uh, note, but she was one of those people who seemed to know everyone, and um, her interactions and... Um, with them, um, her correspondence, her diaries, her, her the, the life she led uh, in that uh, in that fermenting era, are quite interesting and were um, discovered by her great niece uh, Emily. I think it's her great niece as uh, the author Emily Bingham. Um, the records of her great aunt's um, uh, jazz age escapades um, she found in a family attic and has very carefully sifted and archived and, and adapted it all to a, for a, uh, into book form, which Amy Henderson describes to us in, in lurid and luscious detail. Uh, that is followed by a, an essay by Micah Maddox. Um, this is a, a, a considerable shifting of gears. Uh, he's writing about a book entitled Sympathetic Puritans, Calvinist Fellow-Feeling in Early New England by Abram van Engen. Um, which is in in 25 words or less this is a book about the um, shall we say the emotional life and the the communitarian instincts of Puritans in um, early Massachusetts in 17th century and I guess 18th century Massachusetts the, the main point that that is made here and I think is made in the book is that the Puritans the Calvinists who ended up in in New England um, uh, really have suffered from history and historiography. They're, they're caricatured as kind of grim, uh, censorious uh, uh, religious fanatics who uh, aren't interested in anything except praying fervently and punishing those people who don't conform to their social and religious views. And, of course, as with all stereotypes, there's a kernel of truth in this. But, in fact, the, as, as, um, as we've known for a long time, the Puritans are far more complicated than that. Um, far more interesting uh, theologically and socially. Um, in the early mid-20th century, the great Harvard scholar Perry Miller uh, did a lot to redefine our perception of the Puritans. They weren't quite the, the eternal killjoys that people like H.L. Mencken and cartoonists and so on like to talk to, far more complicated people. And this book is, is to some degree about that. Uh, it's about the, the extent to which Calvinists um, felt empathy for their fellow um, uh, colonists and uh, fellow Christians in New England, and Micah Maddox um, describes all this. It's it's a it's a it's a complex subject, but Micah Maddox, I think, simplifies it in a very interesting and accessible way, and I think you'll find it a very interesting um, piece. Uh, if nothing else, it it will help to um, broaden and deepen and make more complicated our views of. Uh, one of America's and North America's earliest um, groups of settlers. That is followed by an essay by Daniel Ross Goodman, who uh, is an occasional contributor to these pages. It it uses, that there was recently a a James McNeil Whistler exhibition at the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts, in western Massachusetts, and... Um, the centerpiece, of course, being uh, arrangement in gray and black, number one, which you may not recognize it by its name, but that's the 1871 painting known to posterity as Whistler's Mother, and it's a kind of interesting essay on 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 Whistler and on Whistler's Mother, which at the time uh, uh, was a kind of a revolutionary painting in its in its um, in its uh, style and execution. Now, of course, like the Puritans, it's a, it's a bit of a stereotypical icon. But Goodman describes this process in an interesting way. Um, That is followed by a, a piece by, uh, an essay by Joe Queenan, um, uh, which is about the 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 problem of, uh, and and Joe Queenan often discusses the, the myriad. Uh, pitfalls and and, uh, scrapes you can get into in cocktail conversation, but the problem you have when you're talking to someone about, on a subject about which you know something, but they think they know everything, and how difficult that can be, and especially people who have specialized in their lives uh, in uh, relatively uh, obscure um, uh, realms of knowledge. But um, anyway, as as anyone who has ever um, suffered through trying to uh, make three or four moments of conversation at a cocktail party on a subject of, of mutual interest but mutually antagonistic uh, views. I think you'll find Joe Queenan's essay as funny as I did. Okay. That is the September 28th issue of, uh, um, issue of the Weekly Standard, the Books and Arts section of the September 28th Weekly Standard. I thank you as always for taking a few moments to listen to my preview, and I very much look forward to talking to you next week about our next issue.